Hello, beautiful human. Thank you for joining Shit You Don't Want to Talk About. We're stoked to have you be a part of the conversation changing shit you don't want to talk about into shit to talk about. This show was created to have us open our minds and learn about new perspectives even when we don't agree with them. Please be advised. Episodes can discuss content that is not suitable for all listeners and it can be triggering. Opinions of our guests expressed on the show are their own. They do not necessarily represent the views of myself or the show. There are a few ways we could really use your support. Please share your favorite episode, especially send them to someone that could really use the content we talked about. Donate on PayPal and Patreon. Subscribe and rate the show iTunes and Spotify and follow on social media and join the conversation. It's shit to talk about. That's shit. The number two talk about links are in the episode description. Hey, Dr. Naima, thank you for joining shit. You don't want to talk about, please introduce yourself and the shit you want to talk about today. I am so excited to be here. I think I love the title of your podcast more than I'm willing to admit. I I think (laughs) it's super dope. Thank you for having me. I am a brand new published author. I am a doctor of chiropractic and a entrepreneur and a brand new creative. I think that I would have said prior to writing this book that I was not a writer. I wasn't even a journaler. And that I I was not the type of person who could sit and create a project that somebody would then hold in their hand at one point. And so I am probably the most excited about becoming a published author that has been a very secret uh, dream of mine that I shared with nobody until I actually wrote the book. Um, Then I actually told people, yeah, I've I've always wanted to do this. But before I I wouldn't share that. That was still so personal for me. And I didn't think that I could get it done. And then when I got it done, I was like, yeah, yeah, I always wanted to do it. (laughs) That is amazing. And out of curiosity, how did you get started on writing your book? Like I've had to hire a writing coach in the fact of, I don't know how to dig deeper sometimes. And I get really stuck on like facts instead of the story behind it. Uh, Was that your experience or were you able to uh, just start writing? Um, So if it was not for having a friend who had just gone through a similar um, experience where she had become a published author, and I didn't know her skill set beforehand. Like we weren't like that. Like we weren't besties. We were friends, and um, and I knew her in a different. Um, perspective um, from her profession. She is a uh, fashion consultant, wardrobe, executive presence, um, you know, person who works for, you know, uh, big companies and helps, you know, people really dress the part. And what she had found is that, you know, there were all kinds of worthiness issues, especially as they came to women, but certainly men as well, 
um, and how they showed up in the world in terms of uh, the clothes that they chose and were wearing. And um, so I knew her from that perspective. And when she had completed the book, I got an opportunity to interview her on my podcast. And that led into me emceeing her book launch. And I was so excited for her. And I just thought, oh, that's so great. And then I had a complete emotional crisis and breakdown uh, and I was 49 and I didn't understand why this was happening because these things should not happen at 49 because you should have it all figured out. Um, and because I believed in the shooting on yourself, you, I should be this far. I should um, have these, um, you know, sort of accoutrements to my success. And I should not have these, you know, longstanding, you know, emotional issues. Um, so when that did happen, I was, it, I felt like something broke inside of me. And when I finally could see my way clear, I remember calling her and saying, Hey, do you have the information, you know, for the person, but I totally couched it like, yeah, I have a friend who's interested in writing a book. I wouldn't even admit it to her in that moment. And she introduced me to Professor Eric Custer, who has this entire institute called the Creator Institute. And essentially it stemmed from him being a professor at Georgetown University. And what he wanted to do was to give his students something that they could tangibly hold in their hand that was theirs at the end of the semester versus just a grade, right? And so he helped them start writing books, you know, creating manuscripts. And by the end of the semester, they had this manuscript. It was a really rough draft, but it was a manuscript. And then he ultimately grew that into an entire program essentially that was so structured so that people like me, a non-university student could sort of step in. And what he did is he partnered you from the very beginning with an editor that would literally hold your hands. And the title of the editor was a developmental editor. And so what they would do is they would give you writing assignments. And just like a regular class online, we'd meet once a week and he'd give us, you know, tips on writing and, and how to develop a story and those sorts of things and character arc development and creation, all things that I was not familiar with. And so that hour we spent um, at class was very helpful. But the thing that really was the turning point for me was working with an editor every single week and having an assignment. And so the answer, very long way to answer your question was what I had the opportunity was, is to just write stories. I didn't have this overall context of what the book, my book was going to look like, you know, at the end, how it was all going to sort of come together. And that's a lot like my personality, meaning I'm a good beginner of things, but I don't necessarily have the full vision or the details to how that's going to get done. Um, but what I do have is this idea and I'm an idea person. So the editor kept having to bring me back, right? Like, no, come on back, come on back. You're way out here in left fields. 
We're what we're looking for are stories that then relate to what I had was a title. And the title came to me a little bit like how you shared about your tattoos, that it came in a dream. My title came to me in that way. And I knew that the title of the book was going to be raised as a lie. And because it was so provocative and because I, it, I wanted the stories then to, be, to lend themselves to giving credence to this title, the editor really did help sort of rein me in when I go off, you know, on a tangent, a writing tangent. He'd say, no, that's not quite it. And then, you know, he sort of helped create the framework. And that's what ultimately ended up being my uh, secret ingredient, if you will. That was the thing that allowed me to be successful was somebody who was so much more knowledgeable to, to you know, book writing process. While it's a, what's called hybrid publishing, which means that all of the content is mine, nobody else wrote it. Um, what they do allow is, or, or rather give you is the framework so that you can place your material, like the sink goes into the kitchen, right? Yeah. We're not gonna put that in the hallway, that sort of thing. I absolutely love that. And I will say to the audience, because you mentioned your friend about fashion, I don't even want to mention her book because I don't want it to distract us, but we will link it in the episode details because I was like, oh, that's a book I want to read. And (laughs) it sounds like your experience has been very similar to what I've been going through as well with working with a writing coach. Her name is Mimi Hayes. And she's doing something very similar of giving me assignments and then asking more detail as she's reading through it or, and like, Hey dude, that doesn't make any sense. And now I do want to go back to the title of your book because it is provocative. And could you tell us a bit about your book and because your life story, because it is, I, when I first learned about it, I was like, this isn't real. Yeah. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. I think that the cool part about becoming a first time author for me is that what I would have not said about myself is that I, I am a creative, right? I said that because I truly meant it. And what I also know to be true about each one of us humans is that we normalize our experiences our life. If you live in a place that's cold in the winter time, it's just cold. You know, it's cold. You don't expect it to be anything other than cold. And you then acclimate and accommodate accordingly. And what I believed about my life was that it was normal because it was my normal. What I believed was that there was not anything unique, so to speak, about my life. But I did have a lot of shame around shame around how I felt internally, and I internalized that. And so I did not speak about my life to other people. And as I w- was, you know, older and an adult and raising a family, this was just not conversations that I had because I didn't realize how much 
of the trauma that I was actually carrying around that I had either swept it under a rug or as my therapist has pointed out, something that the uh, military does for the soldiers and training soldiers is that you, during crisis, that you ignore and override. You don't have time to be contemplating about, you know, what you're going to do on leave or what your family is doing back at home when there's a crisis. You're ignoring everything else and you're focusing solely on the task in front of you. And I think that, that I did that throughout my life. And I have come to realize that even as an adult, I was living from childhood traumas. So I am a brown girl who grew up in an all-white family. We lived in all-white neighborhoods. Um, I went to all-white schools. And I was told that I, too, was white. And for any of the folks who were watching the video, as opposed to listening, I have brown skin, light, but brown skin and very curly hair. My siblings are blonde haired, blue eyed and with very straight hair. And you can look at any picture to include the picture on my cover and you can see instantly who is the person who does not belong in this picture? And it was always me, of course, right? And so um, I, I grew up feeling very invisible. And when I was visible, what it felt like is that I was either being tolerated or that there was an issue with some physical aspect of me. Now, I knew that I was loved. So let me not say that I grew up in a home without love. I did not. I knew that there was love. There was also abuse. There was also violence. There was also um, a, a failure to communicate that I, me being me growing up was worthy just the way that I was, as opposed to you should be more like, if only your hair was more like, if only this wasn't such a problem. And, um, and as I said earlier, all of that came to a head as a 49 year old. And I didn't even realize that that was an issue until I truly got into therapy and started pulling back those layers and lifting up the rug and digging out all of the shit that I had shoved under that um, very decorative rug. I'm very fashionably conscious that way, but it was a rug no, nonetheless. There is a lot to unpack there. Uh, something that I, I do want to call out and ask a question about, because I think that, especially for those listening, instead of watching it, you identified yourself as brown instead of black. And I'm a bit curious about that in the fact of maybe it's me not knowing, uh, you know, being a, a bit um, naive about this, as well as I do want to say to you and our listeners that it 
it is a choice for you to, to answer those type of questions because we cannot just walk up to somebody that's different than us and that, and expect them to put on that intellectual burden because that is not right to anybody at all. I understand. And that, and I certainly appreciate that. And I'm happy to have the conversation. So when I say brown, I am referring to my skin color. I, um, as opposed to my very pale siblings um, and mother. And the man that is on my birth certificate is um, blonde haired, blue eyed. He is clearly not the biological dad. And I, um, and what I write about in the book is, is coming to that truth but I didn't find out until I was almost 18. So I had spent my entire childhood um, questioning. I say entire childhood, let me correct. I questioned my mother probably three, maybe four times in my life. My mother was a matriarch um, from the, probably when I was from six years old on up until then she was married to the man that was on my birth certificate and he was a very violent man. And so there was not a lot of conversations. I would have never asked him um, before that. And she was not the head of the household then. Post that uh, separation and divorce, um, my mother probably returned to a woman that she had been prior to the marriage, which was a fiercely strong and independent woman. And what I believe in the end is that my mother's choices were based off of a time that we were living in, which was 1970 and 71, and that she made a decision then that she was going to protect me. We lived in a country for which uh, was intolerant of Black people. I would uh, go so far as to say that we have not moved the needle um, much further than that, although we like to have conversations that we have and, you know, pretend that there has been such great change. Um, and yet we have instances after examples, after tragedies of, you know, the Trayvon Martins and the George Floyds. Um, and what I know to be true in my own life is that we have not moved the needle nearly as far, but we, it's because we don't have the very honest, very hard, very high courageous conversations and then take action, um, right? And certainly we live in a, um, a, a world that, that institutionalizes um, thought processes and um, programming, right? So having said that, um, I believe that my mom chose to protect me in an environment for which she did not feel safe. And she certainly did not feel safe for, for me to know um, the truth. And so she withheld that. And um, when I found out, I did not have this experience where I was like, I'm just going to embrace the whole rainbow and it's going to be good because there was not this middle ground that I could find that felt equal footing. I know that 
growing up, I was always too brown to be white, although I could not have told you what I was uh, growing up. I just knew that I was different. Um, from my earliest memories, I knew that I was very different. Um, and then as, a, as an adult, what I found was that I was too white to be black. And that colorism is a very real phenomena in black culture. And it's tragic, but it's very real. And it's real because of post-slavery. It, it, is, it is very real because of slavery. It's, it's very real because of the world that we live in post-slavery. It is very real that for 12 generations, of human existence, Black people have been brutalized and terrorized in this country. And we are only um, just a couple of generations post-legalized slavery, but certainly the mindset has not uh, evolved to the point where um, we can eradicate what it means to be a lighter skinned black person versus a more melanated black skinned person. And so I say all that to say is that when I came into my new black, you know, ness, I was so excited. I had, you know, a copy of um, uh, Malcolm X's autobiography under my arm. And I thought I was going to enter into college, um, the University of Southern California, and Black people were just going to embrace me. And it was going to be incredible. And I was like, here I come. I've been white all these years. And now I'm, and no, that is not what happened. And because that's not what happened, I, I sort of didn't not know where and how to show up in the world. And, and so that was sort of a new level of, you know, how do you identify yourself and how, how do you find value in where you are in the world? And turns out what I ended up doing is just shoving more shit underneath the rug and not dealing with that. But what I did decide was that I was a Black woman in the world, because while I might have been a fair-skinned person, I knew for 100% certain that white people did not look at me and go, oh, look, there's a white woman. Like, no, nobody says that. And so I was very, very clear about that. And so I chose to fully embrace Black culture, Black identity. Um, and I went on a mission to learn everything that I possibly could, um, you know, in history. And what that, where that landed me was an incredible pride, because I think that Oftentimes what people think is that Black history began in this country and it simply did not, right? You know, human slavery began in this country, but Black people existed. Africans were in this country long before Christopher Columbus ever sailed to these seas. And, and that was the thing that just gave me so much pride when I really studied, you know, African history and in, in its antiquity and really embrace something much greater than I had ever learned. And so that was a, a really great sense of pride for me. 
Thank you for that. And thank you for going into detail about that. I can only imagine that people that know that their parents and are interracial, that this is a struggle for them as well. And the fact of, uh, to your example, uh, with your history of a black parent and a white parent of, you know, not being able to fit in on either one of them. And there are so many topics we can talk about, but we only have an hour. So there are a few curiosities that came up with this, but um, I do want to say that I want to bring it back to your mother here shortly of when you first started going to school and you were wanting to embrace black culture and show up and wanted everybody to, you know, accept you. uh, A few things that I've heard over the years is people, black community to others, uh, but also in all communities um, uh, that they're too whitewashed or, um, you know, you, you don't speak like a black person or, um, like code switching, those type of things. Did you experience that as well? Yes. And so I did not, I didn't know that existed, right. I didn't grow up, um, understanding all of the intricacies and what that meant to be black, um, and what that meant, necessarily to be white, right? We just, again, normalize our experience. It is our environment. It is the thing that we know. um, And it is what we are familiar with. And oftentimes that familiarity breeds comfort, right? And of course it does, um, because it's the thing that we know. But it also, I think, gives, lends itself to the opportunity to be far more casual, I think, with people and their emotions. To say it plainly, we don't know what other people are going through, have gone through and have experienced. And oftentimes I think that we become far too lax in the things that we say, right, Um, to others. And, And I don't know that we have fully realize just how detrimental that our words can be, right? Words are powerful, very, very powerful. And what I've learned in my life is that they have energy and they carry on long after they have been uttered. And so when I got to the University of Southern California, I thought that um, I was going to be embraced. And when I was not, the things that struck me is walking into a room. So the uh, USC is a primarily white institution, PWI. So their population of black students and brown students at that time when I was there was 4%. And so some people would look at that and think, oh, well, that's so tiny. But for me, I was like, this is amazing. Look at all these Black people, right? And I chose 
to become part of um, the Black Student Union. And I would attend the Black Student Assembly meetings, which were all the heads of all of the different um, Black organizations that were on campus, because that little small 4% made themselves very known and very, they were very vocal on the campus. And there was, so this is 1990. Two, one going into ninety in, into ninety two. This is I entered on the heels of the Los Angeles uprisings, which you know have been sort of historically named the riots. Um, this was um, you know on the heels of Rodney King's um, not only the the whole beating from the four white officers, but the trial had just um, commenced and they were uh, acquitted of all charges. The city was up in flames and race and discrimination and oppression and poverty and unequal rights were on everybody's lips. Um, and this is something that I wrote about in my book because I was so excited to attend because I wanted to be part of the conversation. I had been studying um, and I wanted my I wanted to lend my voice um, for having the conversations around how do we create change in these environments. And so I was excited to be part of the Black Student Union and Assembly and, you know, having, you know, these conversations because, you know, college students are so ripe with energy and they want and crave and seek change. And, I was, you know, just enthralled to be there. And I thought that they were all going to be excited to see me too. And so what I would hear instead when I walked in rooms would, um, she ain't really that black or she ain't black really. Or I'd watch, I'd watch the girls, um, the women um, in these, you know, meetings and whatnot, and watch them grab their boyfriend's hands and hold them tighter as if, you know, I was there to get their man. And I didn't understand what was happening. And I'm going to fast forward just a little bit to five we'll call it five, six years ago, my oldest and I had a conversation. No, gosh, it's longer than that. I don't realize how old I am. This is like seven, <laughs> seven years, seven, eight years ago when my oldest had gone to the university, um, well, it's Louisiana State University. So he's at LSU and he's 6'2", very brown, very curly, lot of hair. and he was like, I don't, I don't understand. Why are they crossing the street? So the university is, you know, surrounded by the little town. And so he'd be outside of the university walls, you know, just walking around, exploring the town. And he'd say, I don't understand. Why are they crossing the street when they come, when they're coming near me? Why, why, I, what is, what is happening and I, I was so, my heart hurt so much trying to have this conversation with him. 
And I remember feeling that way when I would enter a room, only that they weren't fearful of me physically, like nobody was afraid that I was going to harm them, but their biases were that this light skin, you know, black woman walks into a room and she sort of got these, gives off these Jezebel sort of vibes, which is a very old um, persona that you know, was attached to black women. They were either the Aunt Jemimas or the Jezebels, right? They were either these old sort of mammy looking characters, or they were this, you know, sensual, sexy, you know, female that was trying to steal, you know, other women's men. And I, again, I didn't know about any of these things. And, and, and through my own ignorance, I felt very disarmed. Um, and recognized much later that these other women that were experiencing these feelings were dealing with their own levels of self-hatred. They were dealing with their own, you know, history of being programmed that, you know, um, that white is best and, you know, that they had not been, um, represented, you know, in, you know, in the media and seeing themselves in a favorable light, especially being dark skinned black women. Um, and then that was a problem. And, you know, and so ultimately, I think that there's a lot that is still left for us as, as humans to be able to celebrate other cultures. I think that what we do is we allow ourselves to sort of be, um, you know, hypnotized into believing that, you know, we're so much further than we are. And, and I remember what was it in the late eighties, early nineties, sort of this, this idea that um, I'm going to be colorblind, but if you're blind, that means that you cannot see me. If you are blind, you cannot love me. You cannot appreciate who I am and what I bring to the table and to the conversation and to culture. And I think that that is so ass backwards. Like that's, that's not the answer. I think yeah. that instead we need to look at how it is that we, we see people we see and appreciate culture not to be not to be stolen not to be covered up not to be um you know disregarded but see the the true beauty and the value that each one of us brings all your answers there's a lot to unpack <laughs> and no and i don't specifically <laughs> And thank you for sharing that experience. Um, a couple things, because I think your, your experience alone can teach us all quite a bit. And what you said, there were, there are two things that I do want to call out just for our listeners. There is a book called white fragility, and it is a very powerful book. And I would highly, highly suggest listening to it, or I listen to audible um, but, you know, Me reading too. it or listening to it because it really, in at least 
when I read it, it's been a few years, but it really saw how to change colorblindness into embracing that diversity. And the other part that I really want to touch on is you mentioned about your son and, uh, I can't imagine what it is like for specifically black men. I know during the protests there, a lot of the protests say hands up, don't shoot. And I've never cried during a protest before. And it's just so powerful in the fact that as a black man, he had to experience people just walking away, crossing the street when they get pulled over. And it's so much of it. And the shame that you mentioned of being a black human is there's so much that is generational and we are working on changing yet without having these conversations and without, as you said, without actually making the change, this, this is not going to get better. And I know that this could be another whole entire podcast. So, uh, Dr. Nima, I, I do want to go back to your experience growing up and with your mother. I, so you mentioned that you're on your birth certificate. It was a white guy on there with uh, blonde hair and blue eyes. And that's what your siblings looked like. And then your mother, I'm putting two and two together. So are you the oldest? No, I am not. No, I'm not. So okay. <laughs> yes. like, there's a lot to yes. think about there's- there. There's even more. Um, So no, I am not. I have my sister, my oldest sister is uh, seven years older than me. And my mom was a teen mom. And she did not marry um, the father, um, my sister's father. And um, instead, when she... uh, I think that her life changed quite a bit, but certainly this is something that um, I share in the book is I think that it is so important because we can make, it's very easy to make these judgments about people and their choices because we don't have context. And that was, that was something that I, I very much had to learn about my my mother was understanding that her life had huge changes and significant um, differences in the way that she, the way that her life looked, um, where she was the oldest and she um, became responsible for all of her siblings at age 11 when her mother had a nervous breakdown. And she had to step into this very um, 
very significant role for which she was not prepared for. She was 11, um, but she did as she was told and as she, as it was expected, my um, very traditional, you know, um, Italian family for which that um, women are expected to be these, you know, domestic God, this is like, they just, they, they, they sort of are, you know, the women, the girls are raised to, you know, do all of these things at home and still make sure that the rest of, you know, life still proceeds and whatnot. And so here she is at 11 taking on this role while um, her mother is, you know, suffering from this huge mental breakdown and her dad's out working and whatnot. And the siblings, you know, still need um, all of the care and um, caretaking. And so she took on that role. And I think that, that in that there was a, a a lot that she sort of dealt with being burdened with these responsibilities for which that she would have never complained about. That wasn't the type of person that she was. She just sort of took it on. And I think that she was looking for some relief, reprieve, and she wasn't a good picker in men. And that was unfortunate. And so by the time she gets to the point where she's going to get married, she once again has not picked um, a good human. And um, she finds out she's pregnant with me two weeks before she gets married. And um, I am imagining, although her and I never did um, have this conversation. And so I did a little bit of assumptions, um, assuming when I wrote the book that I think that she probably had a really challenged pregnancy because she didn't know who's the dad was. And, um, and I think that that probably, created a tremendous amount of stress. And when I was born, it was, well, damn, um, she doesn't look like him. And, and so I think that there was probably, you know, a lot of unspoken things and to the credit of her first husband, Jim, while he was not a good human being, um, the thing that I can credit him with is that to his death, um, she left him when I was, we'll call that six-ish. Um, he never once ever said, this is not my child and I will not take care of her. Um, he was an equal opportunity bastard. Like he didn't treat me any worse than he treated anybody else. Um, And maybe I contributed a little bit to that, meaning that maybe the tension was even higher in the house that wouldn't have otherwise existed if it was not so apparent I was not his child. Um, But he certainly... um, did not reject me nor my mother out of hand. Like he just continued to be the person that um, he was. And so um, 
I think that my mom's picker did get better and I was blessed very, oh gosh, I could so much. So when she did choose her second husband, um, who was just the most incredible human being, um, and he entered our lives, um, and they got married, um, but was in third grade, they were married and it was a huge, huge blessing. And I really saw, even though he didn't look like me either. Um, he was probably one of the kindest human beings that I've ever known and um, was very blessed for his time here on earth. There was never a thing that I wanted for, um, especially emotionally. He was always there, very, very tuned in as a man to his own emotions and willing to give out um, more love than he probably ever received in his life. He just seemed boundless in that um, regard. And I was very, very blessed. And I think that that was ultimately what helped me appreciate my mother's choices. Um, when somebody shows you by modeling how they live to show up in a loving space, then it allowed me not to be bitter and not to be angry and to find compassion for my mom's choices. Now, I wasn't always happy about it. Let me not (laughs) pretend that that happened, but I certainly had a much better perspective because um, he meaning my stepfather was so much of a person who would show up into any given situation and be the person of the voice of reason and the person who brought the love to the environment. Again, you explain it so eloquently that I, (laughs) I, I, there are a few things that I do want to touch on. Did your mother ever figure out who your father was? Yes. So she knew, um, she knew who he was. She just did not. um, So what, what I know to be true is that um, she, even in 1970, um, she was, having sex with her, the person she married, Jim. Um, and she also, he went away to Vietnam and, um, and she had a relationship with another man. And so she knew once I was born, who's, who my father was, she just didn't know when I, while she was pregnant, if it was his or it was Jim's. And it was only when I was born that she must have been like, well, damn, (laughs) right? Like that didn't, that didn't go off the way that I, you know, being, being her had hoped, right? Mm -hmm. Because it would have been much easier. Her life would have been not nearly as complicated, Um, but that's, that's not what happened. And especially with that. So did you ever meet your father, your biological father? I did not. Okay. I I do. I would love to dive in deeper on that, but I think, you know, going through your experiences is a bit more important uh, of growing up of our um, time. Uh, Now, how did your mother learn or 
I, I don't want to, I feel like deal with has negative connotation, but your hairstyle is going to be much different. Like my hair is so thin and a lot of uh, white women in general have very thin hair. And I've had one of my best friends um, that I've traveled with, her children are black. And she was like, you want to do my daughter's hair? Go have fun with that. It'll take you like half an hour. And I, I feel like that was very, eye-opening to me because I never realized how different it was how did your mother handle that or like were you ever allowed to have natural hair so such a great question I some people talk about bad hair days I had bad hair years so my mother even though she had grown up in Detroit um, before they moved, um, and actually had similar experiences only in the reverse. There were classes that she was the only white kid in the class. Um, so she was very familiar with the differences, um, in black hair, white hair, meaning that there were differences, not that I'm saying she was out doing her girlfriend's hair because that wasn't what was happening. But by the time she had me and she made the decision that the man on my birth certificate was my father and that there was going to be no conversation around it, um, she had to keep up the lie. I mean, my mother, of course, would know that there were black hair salons. Now, I'm going to reverse. I'm, I'm going to, um, to go back or rewind for just a moment. We lived, I was born on um, an army base where Jim was stationed in El Paso, Texas, when he came back from Vietnam. Um, And right after I was born, he received his discharge papers and we moved to where he grew up. And that was in a very rural town in Utah. And by rural and town, I do want to emphasize there were 300 people who lived in this town. The people who lived in the surrounding areas um, were Native American because it was sandwiched between two reservations and um, mountain ranges. And so, um, and they were I don't know in 1970, but certainly they are uh, wildlife refugee, refugee areas, refuges, however that, thank thank you. you. I was like, (laughs) what is that word? It's not refugee. (laughs) Um, And they were preserved lands, or at least they are now. I don't know um, then. Um, So beautiful, beautiful country. Um, The people were not so diverse. And so here we are living in this town for which it doesn't have black hair salons. Let me just be clear. Um, But when she left Jim and we moved to Southern California, there certainly were opportunities, but she did not seek those out because again, that would have not allowed the lie to continue to prevail. And I honestly believe that my, it was my mother's intention to protect me. This was the 1970s. And although it's, that's not the 40s or 50s or even 60s, it certainly is not, it's not in the rearview mirror, right? Racism and oppression and lynchings were still happening. 
Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so she kept up the line, the princesses. So she'd be the one that would do my hair. And what you originally, the words that you originally were thinking about using is like, how does she deal with, um, and not wanting to choose it because it did have a negative connotation, but that was exactly my experience. That was everything negative, um, associated with my hair was, um, those are the conversations that were being had around and about me, even though I was standing there as if I didn't exist. Right. So, oh God, we've got to deal with this mop again. And, oh, it looks like a rat's nest and, oh, like always something very bad. And so when I was first or second grade, my mom cut all my hair off, um, in an Afro sort of look and only my hair, for those of us who can see me, my hair when short doesn't hang in ringlets. That's not what it is. It's very big, obnoxious sort of wannabe curls, but they don't all go in one direction. They're everywhere. Let's it's not cute people. It's not cute. And it wasn't cute then. And you also, when you have black hair, their products are everything. The things that you put in your hair to, to define curls, to, um, reduce frizz, um, and the tools that you use um, are very, very pr- specific, and they um, are necessary to create different looks. But if you're trying to make curly hair straight, and you're not going to use any chemicals that maybe a black hair salon would use because they are professionals, and you're my mother who believed that all things were um, uh, worthy of doing at home. My mother was a DIYer long before that ever became a popular term. And so she just believed that she could do it herself. So we're going to say all of that to say that I had bad hair years. It wasn't cute. It was not until I got to college at that same university for which a very kind black student who became my best friend said, girl, come here, let me help you. And she literally transformed my hair like over overnight. And it was because of her that I actually, for the very first time, and this is when I'm like 1920, um, I very first started loving my hair. I actually, I liked it then. She taught me how to like it. It took me probably another, we'll call it 10 years to actually love it. And, you know, here I am at, you know, knocking on 51. um, And I can honestly say that I'm so grateful to all of my experiences, because I know what it feels like not to love your hair and not to appreciate it. And I can honestly say that while I am of mixed race and while I, um, I don't have, you know, um, 
uber coarse, you know, very, very tight, kinky hair. What I can say is that I've experienced the sort of disregard and disdain um, as it applies to my hair that, you know, every other black woman has had at some point of in their life, some sort of an inexperience. So, you know, I, and I, also, I have talked to other other women now um, in my age group who other white women who have extremely curly hair and they're like, yeah, I hated it my whole life and I've been straightening it my whole life. And so, you know, there's certainly something to be said that curly haired girls do have a commonality in our experience. And I, I do want to add to it. I've always, especially because I have such thin hair. The grass is greener concept is something that only until my thirties did I realize I don't want someone else's hair. I just need to learn how to deal with my own hair. And I think that's something that all humans go through at some point. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for really describing how your mom worked with your hair, dealt with your hair, as you said, too. (laughs) And going through that. And I know we don't have much more time. There's so many more questions and listeners, you have to read Dr. Naima's book to be able to find out how she found out that she was not white. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing the answers to that and what people thought, please reach out to us on social media. I now, is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to cover? Um, God, great question. So I, I love the conversation that, um, that we've been having around just this idea of, you know, how we appreciate and how we see each other. Um, and I also think that something that I have come to find out, um, is, and learn in my own life and being able to apply it is this concept that worthiness is an inside job. It is not some external experience and or somebody on the outside that gives us our worth and our value. And to the degree that we are continuing to look for our worthiness, from the outside and for somebody to have given that to us is just not realistic. And I think that once we appreciate that we have to do the internal work, the one thing that I, I know now being a mom and trying my very best to do my very best by my children is that no child escapes childhood Un, unscarred, uninjured, un, unblemished in some way. And I used to joke with my kids that I'd pay for the six, first six months of therapy because I knew that there are things and ideas that I have that in some way in me trying to communicate to them and teach them about the world and things and how to show up that weren't going to feel good to them. And there were going to be some things that I had said unconsciously or in moments of anger that 
we're going to emotionally hurt them while it was never intended to be malicious and that I always hoped to show up as my best version. I did not. And so the thing that I I understand now is how important it is for us all to be able to unpack our stuff, the things and the meanings and the decisions that we gave things and experiences in our lives growing up, that as adults, that if we simply took a really good inventory about who we are and how we show up in the world, that we can be more responsible humans because the adage is true, hurt people hurt people. And if we want to live in a healthier society where we can appreciate, we can see, and we can value and love other people, then it all starts with the person in the mirror. And when you look at yourself and you don't value and you don't love and you don't appreciate yourself, you certainly cannot do that for others. So I think that it is so important for all of us to take our own advice, our own ideas about the worlds and apply them to ourselves so that we can be the best versions of ourselves and that we can show up to our fullest potential. And I have a belief that the world has nothing for us, that we have everything for the world. We have gifts that we have been blessed with, that only us in only our way, with only our voice, our pen, our action, can we bring forth that unique gift to the world and that somebody or somebodies are waiting for that. They need that. And that's how we continue to bless the world. But you can't bring your gifts forward if you don't do the internal work. And as for me, I think that I'm still a work in progress. We're all still a work in progress, but as long as we're working to our greatest version and our greatest evolution of ourselves that we just continue to get better and better. And that's what I'm checking for. I absolutely love that. And it reminds me of a quote I really should look up who it's by is uh, we are all a masterpiece and a work in progress at the same time. And yes. I've always loved that quote. And I feel like you already answered words of wisdom in, in <laughs> your previous answer, because it's so powerful knowing that doing our own work is, is what's going to bring us the most happiness. And also I like how you mentioned about not being able to get it from outside sources. I will say <laughs> that therapists, books, those type of things will help you dig deeper, yet yes. they're not your, they're not going to validate you. Um, do you have any other words of wisdom? I don't want to 
pick that one and say, oh, good. I, <laughs> I love that so much. And I'm, I'm so glad that you made the clarification because I am such a huge advocate now for therapy in whatever form that takes, right? It could be just you meditating. It can be, you know, um, talk therapy. I utilized everything. I went to an acupuncturist, a massage therapist, a spiritual reader, a card reader, a, um, I did hypnotherapy. Um, I did inner child trauma healing, like whatever that looks like for you. I think that it is so important that we do take ourselves on as our own project. You know, so often we try to fix other things and people because it's easier to see somebody else's forest, you know, through their trees. Um, and it's far more challenging to look, you know, in ourselves and become aware because I, I think that we might be willing, but sometimes it's difficult to become aware of our own habits, our own lenses, right? That, that we put on these, you know, ginormous lens that we see the world from a specific uh, perspective and we're not even aware that they exist. And so being able to peel back the layers in whatever form that that looks like for you so that you can become self-aware so that you can begin to, to heal, you know, the areas that are unresolved in your life. And they all look very different. Like we can't say, well, this person experienced this or even gosh, the same um, siblings in a household, right? Like not everybody walks away from an experience in the same manner, right? We all have, you know, different perspectives and meanings that we take from it. But I would like to say something that I have learned and I absolutely love this now. And this is what it took for me to write a memoir about some very painful shit that happened and to come out the other side and have this perspective. And it is simply this be outrageously vulnerable because vulnerability is not a weakness. It's a strength. It's the moment that you set down your cape, take off the armor, pull down the protective walls that you have um, erected around your heart and you choose to come from a space for which is truest for you and it is your most, I think, honorable part of who it is that you are when you choose to just share and connect from that space. Because as Maya Angelou said, we are all more alike than we are different. And what I believe is that our stories connect each one of us to each other, that we all have a story and that we all have experiences. And it's through those shared connections that we elevate our race, that we elevate our planet, how we show up and how we engage one another is through vulnerability. 
I completely agree. And that is amazing words of wisdom. Thank you. And to all our listeners, please, if you're, you know, want to be a part of the conversation of shit you don't want to talk about and turning it into shit to talk about, we are going to have a lot of the links in the show notes. And also please share this episode, like it on YouTube, subscribe, and let us know on social media what it is you got out of the episode. I know I would be curious if you want to have Dr. Naima back on the show because we weren't able to talk about everything today and check out her book. And then also if other ways to support is definitely donate so we can keep this podcast going and be able to have other resources built. How do people reach out to you, Dr. Naima? I am, um, I'm on social media, Instagram at Dr. Naima writes, and that's a mouthful. So I'm sure it'll definitely be in the show links. And also you can get the book and find out the latest happenings, um, what's going on in the raised as a lie world at raised as a lie.com. Perfect. Thank you. And what is something that you're grateful for? Gosh, in this moment, because I love being, I I am working on being present and I love um, being very mindful of what's happening right now. This conversation without um, wanting to seem like I'm sucking up, (laughs) I absolutely loved this conversation. I loved having this time with you. I think that this is such a great example of people being able to come together with very different histories and have this great shared connection. Like my heart is so full. I had such a great time having this conversation with you over the last hour. Thank you. And I agree. My, I would say something that had, actually came out of our conversation that I am grateful for is therapy. And I, I've mentioned on many episodes that I do EMDR therapy and it's really helped me move through items and change them from traumatic memories into just memories. And I am very, very grateful for that. And thank you for being on the show, Dr. Naima. It is my pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Hello again, beautiful human. What did you get out of today's episode? We'd love to hear what was most impactful to you. We all know someone that could have really used this episode. So please send it their way. Remind them that they're not alone. Stay tuned for new episodes every Wednesday. Here's a few ways that we could really use your support to keep shit you don't want to talk about going. Share an episode. Let's get the message out there. Donate on PayPal or Patreon. Subscribe and rate the show on iTunes or Spotify and follow us on social media. Shit to talk about shit. The number two talk about. Bye.